archives are political, they're not neutral, and, and this work is, is fundamentally political. Hello, and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Inga Story, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we are joined by Orla Egan of the Cork LGBT Archive. Orla founded the project in 2015 and has developed it now to encompass a digital archive available at corklgbtarchive.com, which is also retained as part of the Digital Repository of Ireland and Europeana. A physical archive now housed in the Cork City Council Public Museum, a book entitled Queer Republic of Cork, and a number of exhibitions. We talked to Orla about how she developed the archive as a volunteer with limited resources to the multi-platform project it now encompasses, the histories and stories of the Cork LGBT community represented in the archive material, the challenges of a community archive project, and the value of community archives as activism. You can visit the archive at corklgbtarchive.com. If you want to get in touch with the Irish Left Archive, you can find us via our website at leftarchive.ie um, we're also on twitter at ie left archive if you're enjoying the podcast please do subscribe um, and if you have any feedback we'd be glad to hear from you so thanks again to orla for joining us and thank you for listening thank you very much for joining us orla can we start maybe just by asking you to give us a little bit of background to how the cork lgbt archive project got started I suppose um, I've been involved in the Cork LGBT community since around the 1980s. So I would have been aware of the fact that there was this really rich history of LGBT activism and community formation and venues and events and organisations. And also really conscious that it was an invisible history that it wasn't easily accessible, that a lot of people didn't know about it. Um, If you looked at histories around Cork, you couldn't find it. If you looked even at histories around social change movements, there was very little stuff around the Cork LGBT community in it. And what bits of Irish LGBT history we had at that point were very, very Dublin-centric and very kind of personalised in the sense that they were kind of in some ways masquerading as as histories, but often they were just personal accounts of events and organizations that an individual was involved in. So I knew that there was this rich history that was there and wanted to have that be more accessible and be part of the narrative of Irish history, of Irish LGBT history, of Cork history. Um, So back in around 2000, I think, I had been doing some work uh, specifically around the history of the Cork lesbian community and how it kind of had developed and and sought space over the years and basically the background to the establishment of the lesbian centre in Cork. so I, when I was doing that, I had access material from Arthur Leahy's collection. So Arthur is an activist in Cork, um, involved in so many different kind of campaigns, like from the 1970s on, was one of the founders of the Key Co-op, mm. very involved in LGBT activism, a lot of social change activism, currently very involved in the uh, Irish-Palestinian support groups and stuff. So... Arthur had the foresight to start collecting things um, Mm -hmm. from the 1970s onwards. So he had started kind of keeping extra copies of leaflets or 
newsletters or posters or whatever and put them in boxes or suitcases or whatever he could find and kept them in his basement. So he knew it was important to keep them, but he had no kind of plan or vision about what would happen with them. Yeah. And um, he kind of, he has since said that he kind of reckoned somebody would find them when he was dead and do something with them. Hmm. Um, so, it, you know, so he had this collection and I knew he had that collection. Um, <clears throat> and then sometime later, kind of, I started thinking about coming back to doing some work around uh, Cork LGBT history. And I met Arthur and said, whatever happened to that amazing collection? And he said, it's still in my basement. And I was horrified because the basement, it was basically like a glorified closet, which yeah. is symbolic in some ways. Um, but it was damp and it was disorganized and it was chaotic and it was inaccessible. Mm -hmm. So I just said, can I work with it? And he said, yes. So, you know, I think again, it was, you know, we'd known each other for decades. There was a relationship of trust there. So he didn't know what I was going to do with it, but he was happy to let me do whatever it was that I wanted to do with it. Um, and I think the second thing that happened around that same time was kind of an awareness of the fact that how we do history had really changed um, since I'd last been kind of doing kind of historical research. Um, and that we were living in a more digital age and that I didn't have the skills that I needed to kind of really understand how to do that. Yeah. So I decided to uh, do a master's in digital art and humanities. Um, and I would, I would say I was uh, extremely digitally challenged. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if I moved very far <laughs> from there yet. Um, but I started to try and, and get some skills to understand how to um, do something in terms of a digital archive with it. Um, so that was the, the beginnings. Um, and I think at that point I had um, a wish list or a fantasy list, a lot of people said, about the things that I would like to happen with it. And a lot of them just seemed really unrealistic or unachievable and a lot of those are starting to come to fruition which is amazing right. were you thinking in terms of the physical archive as well as the digital at the start in terms of how you yeah it's always been a multi-pronged um mm. project so the very first challenge was getting it out of the basement yeah um that was literally the first challenge and you know, so I would arrive in my car and go down these like very wonky, slippy stone steps and yeah. take boxes out. Um, and at that time, I had access to um, some space on a temporary basis um, in UCC. Um, mm. And so I brought the boxes there and started to, to try and think about how do we get some physical control over the collection? Like it was, yeah. it was chaotic you know um and um and trying to learn how to do that so you know i'm not a uh, archivist i'm um so you're kind of learning there's a huge huge learning graph on on mm. so on learning curve on so many different levels on the digital on the archival on all of those things but i also kind of thought that um it was important to from the very beginning um showcase 
what was there that I, I knew that in order to get any kind of interest and support for the things that I wanted to do that I needed to actually show people um, what, what I had. So for a, a period of time, I had access to um, a really good quality scanner. Um, so I was opening boxes. I was tentatively uh, putting my hand in, not knowing what you would find, yeah. and taking things out and scanning things and putting them online instantly. So it was like, there, it was this thing of just trying to, to get it out there. Mm. Um, and also then trying to kind of work out some kind of system for reorganizing the collection um, and trying to find um, how you do that. So, you know, learning about these lovely grey archival boxes, which I'd never known about before, mm. and that they were also very expensive. <laughs> um, and But the, the kind of showcasing that I had done of being able to show some of the visuals of where this collection started and what I was trying to do with it helped in applying to the Heritage Council the first time to get some funding. Right. The funding was for archival boxes. Um, and I often say this, but I really felt like a very, very, you know, sad person that I was excitedly, you know, taking photographs and tweeting and Facebook and everything about this, like, stack of grey boxes that arrived. <laughs> yeah. So, to me, it was incredibly <laughs> symbolic because it was about that first step of people recognizing and acknowledging that actually this was an important history and an important part of our heritage and something that should be supported, as well as the very practical thing of having proper boxes to put yeah. this mm -hmm. in. Um, so kind of over, over a period of a couple of years, um, I was trying to uh, simultaneously try to sort the collection and create a digital archive. Um, with fantasies about a book and an exhibition and a tour and all kinds of things. And primarily that was something that I was doing on my own. Mm. Um, there was uh, a woman called Liz Downer-Scott who um, used to uh, work in UCC in history, women's studies, European studies, and she had just retired. And Liz is also kind of a long-term kind of feminist activist in Cork. So Liz actually volunteered one day a week to come in and kind of do some of the work around sorting. And she also understood what the material was because some of the difficulty with this is that you didn't actually know what you were looking at unless you knew. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was yeah. nobody dated anything. Yeah. Like, really, you know, there's no dates on a lot of things. Or it's, sometimes, unless you knew the context, you didn't know what a particular document related to. Or, um, so she was able to do that as well. So we made some progress in terms of the um, sorting of the collection. We had a couple of community sorting days, mm. which were actually really good, where a number of people came in and kind of, you know, did that work. And we had really interesting discussions about it, um, I kept saying to people, no reading, no, like, don't get caught into how interesting this is. <laughs> this is very um, familiar, by the way. All of this is very, in, in the sense, you know, just, and I don't want to cut across you, but it's just you say no yeah. reading or you have to know to know. But sorry, continue. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. Yeah, but I think that that's where a digital archive comes into its own, though, is that the kind of the metadata that's linked with it, the information you provide with the item mm. helps people to know what it is that you're looking at, yeah. you know? So like you said, you know, you have to know to know, yeah. but it gives us a framework to actually be able to share that knowledge in a way that's more accessible to people. 
So, you know, so there was this kind of like attempt to kind of get some kind of management with the physical collection, get more of it out of the archive or out of the basement, sorry. And then trying to work out how on earth do you like create a digital archive? Now, you know, Kiwan, you have Ingus and his like skills. Yeah. I didn't have Ingus. Um, and so take him, was... take him, please. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, you know, I mean, I was conscious of the fact that, you know, if, if you had the skills, you could, you know, create a, a, an amazing, wonderful, customized one. Hmm. I didn't have those skills. I didn't have any budget to pay somebody to do that. Um, a, a, a colleague of mine in Digital Humanities one time, um, Patrick Egan, no relation, he did a presentation one day and he had this image about wardrobes, which actually really um, helped me to understand what it was I was doing. I know this sounds off the wall, but he had an IKEA wardrobe and he also had this handmade, handcrafted, beautiful wooden wardrobe that was created by a skilled carpenter okay and the images really worked for me because i thought if i was a skilled carpenter mm. i could create this customized beautiful unique you know fit purpose digital mm. archive yeah. but i didn't have those skills um and i needed to if keeping with the analogy get the clothes off the floor and somewhere and yeah. so I kind of felt like at least with an IKEA wardrobe, um, I could get them off the floor and get them accessible. And also there was an instruction, you know, set for anybody else who wanted to build the IKEA wardrobe or add to the IKEA wardrobe. So in that sense, I wanted to use low cost, low tech, um, open source resources to create the digital archive. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're if you're on the journey with me around the world, yeah. but it really helped me to understand it. So, yeah. in some ways, I suppose you know Angus would be your skilled carpenter in, in this yeah. context. So, um, so, or you know, with other, uh, there's a, a digital archive um, in Norway and Bergen, um, who um, I've met at loads of of different kind of things and. Um, they had huge funding and support. So they were able to, you know, purchase and employ a team of carpenters in this yeah, context. Absolutely. You know, so it, it's like it was trying to figure out how do I do it when I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm learning as I'm going along. But also if you're hit by the proverbial bus that somebody else knows how this thing works. Yeah. You know? Um, so I kind of played around with that a little bit for a while and initially um, I created a WordPress site because mm. I was scared of Amika um, <laughs> and then eventually just kind of bit the bullet and decided to use Amika and again like you know um, Amika the, it, it is a Swahili word that means you know displaying your wares. And I, again, I liked that concept that what it was was creating a mechanism to to showcase, to show people what was there, to show some of the items. Um, so I kind of created the Cork LGBT Archive site using Amica and mm. um, hosted on Reclaim Hosting, um, who kind of provide very low cost uh, server space. Mm. Um, you know, initially, I think they, they had been focused around kind of education and, and providing a, a low cost service space for students. But I, in, I've had discussions with them where they're very happy to support, 
you know, community organisations as well, particularly ones who don't have much of a budget. So, um, and then of course, instantly ran out of storage space, so I had to work out and work around on that. And so it's linked to an Amazon A3 storage system. A few years ago, I wouldn't have understood a word of what I've just said to you. <laughs> um, it sounds like yeah. one of the big advantages of something like Omega is, is there's no point in reinventing the wheel. If somebody's done the work of thinking about how to organize things, um, that's why an open project like that is so useful, you know. Um, I know with the Irish Left Archive, I have been down some utterly wrong rabbit holes with various standards of how to uh, set things up, you know, and uh, I'm sure you've you've been down the, the fun research of metadata and various uh, ways to standardize it and so on, you know, but um, yes. <laughs> there's a lot to be said for a good standard platform for these things rather than us all trying to do it from scratch, you know. Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, the metadata systems and I think, you know, it is particularly challenging when your material isn't mainstream. And, uh, you know, so a lot of, you know, the standardized systems like the Library of Congress, like mm -hmm. are made and designed not with our collections in mind. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember kind of like looking for, you know, things around controlled vocabularies and looking to the Library of Congress and, Let's just say it wasn't the most um, useful or respectful yes. in terms of uh, Irish LGBT things. So again, trying to search for something there, but then finding the Homosaurus. Um, and the Homosaurus uh, was originally developed by um, the IHLIA in Amsterdam um, for their collection and um, has then expanded. So it's basically like a, a, a queer controlled vocabulary that can be used for metadata standards Brilliant. Um, and it's been expanded and revised over the last few years so for a while I was involved in the international editorial board um, kind of revising that which yeah. was was really interesting mm. um, but yeah you know it is around trying to kind of find a way to do this um, and then I was better at this in the past, but I haven't done it so much lately, but I was trying to kind of like bog around my experiences of trying to navigate my way through this, like navigate my way through Dublin Core and, you know, mm. what the hell did that mean? And, you know, as a metadata system and, mm. and how do you do it? So um, somewhere in in this manoeuvring, you know, did actually manage to, to create um, the, the archive. Mm. And, you know, I think Amika is really useful. It's not the prettiest, it's not the most flexible, but it has like a really, really solid kind of mm -hmm. metadata system built into it. Um, and, and in the end, I found it kind of be, you know, easy enough to use um, for somebody who isn't, you know, too, too techy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing that was really important for me um, was reaching out to other archives and trying to find a community, you know, because, you know, initially I kind of felt like this was a very um, isolated kind of endeavor. And there wasn't really anybody else kind of doing something like this in the Irish context. And I think that's why I was so excited um, to, to find out about the left archive, you know, because there, there were so few, you know, um, left alternative digital archives being created in Ireland mm. and for the most part I had to look internationally to find a community to find models and you know I kind of 
went to uh, New York a couple of times to kind of link in with uh, digital archives there, like out history and um, the, you know, the um, uh, lesbian archive that's in, in uh, New York and just like finding out how people did things and that actually it wasn't as mysterious as I thought it was. I kind of went there thinking that they had this huge infrastructure mm -hmm. and funding mm -hmm. and stuff and actually everybody's doing this on a bit of a shoestring and yeah. trying to find ways to do it. Um, but I think that the really big step for me was finding the LGBTQ ARMS conferences. So um, the ARMS is Archives, Libraries, Museums and Special Collections. Mm. So I went to the LGBT conference, uh, arms conference in London. And it was just phenomenal for me. It was like I was in a room full of people who all had the same crazy obsession as me yeah. and who had found numerous different ways to do this. And it was such a community that was, that was so encouraging and supportive of each other's work. Mm. And I remember presenting at London and I was in the early stages and I was kind of going like, I have this amazing stuff, but I'm not really sure what I'm doing with it or <laughs> where I'm going with it or how I'm going to make it happen. And I remember after my presentation, um, Ajamu, who's involved in um, Ruckus, which is this fabulous black uh, queer archive in London. Mm. And I remember Ajamu coming up to me afterwards and just giving me this big hug and going, you're going to get there. You know, we were where you were a couple of years yeah. ago and you're going to get there. And he handed me a copy of the video mm. that they produced. And it was really lovely a few years ago to kind of meet his colleague Topher and be able to kind of give him a copy of the Queer Republic of Cork book and say, will you give that to Ajamu and say yeah. he was right back. You know, I did kind of get a bit further <laughs> down the road. Um, but that community is, mm. is so important and people so willing to kind of share um, resources and expertise and um, just things that they have done that can make it easier for you to do. Um, there's a woman in Arizona uh, called Jane, Jamie Ann Lee who has uh, her PhD was around queering the archive. And, you know, I kind of found her somewhere along the way, made contact, and she sent me her PhD, you know. Um, so that kind of willingness to share resources, yeah. I think, has just been really important, you know, for somebody who's doing this in isolation, really, yeah. mm -hmm. you know. So that, that's been just amazing. And, you know? and, and we should say, like, we called on you for, um, I think, just advice about copyright at one point as well, because mm. we got a little nervous about copyright. Well, I think I think anybody in an archive gets nervous about copyright at some point or another, but it was we weren't 100% sure about something. And it's that sort of, you know, interaction and, yeah. Yeah, and I think that copyright is, is put up as a barrier to a lot of people to doing anything, mm. you know, because well, when I started this first, people were going, no, you just can't. You can't put that online, you yeah. know, copyright. And it was just like this blanket barrier that wasn't in any way nuanced. And mm. so I found myself having to navigate through copyright legislation and try to figure out a way to do this. Mm. And again, finding support with that. So Louise Crowley, a lecturer in UCC Law Department, had a very can-do attitude with this. And she helped me to find an angle that actually, you know, legitimated why I was doing what I was doing and how I was doing it. Do you know, so yeah. really important. You know, because it is that point you make, and I thought what you said about invisible history, and in a way, like the stuff that 
part and parcel is to get the material up online and that people can get to see it. And as you say, like sometimes that's thrown up almost as an obstacle or a barrier to people putting stuff up. Yeah, I think there's a lot of barriers put up. And, and I think particularly, you know, for community archives and for mm. uh, parts of community that don't see ourselves reflected in traditional archives. Yeah. I think there's a lot of barriers put up around like who can do archival work. Mm. And, you know, I, I have huge respect for the profession of, you know, being an archivist. Mm. But I think the challenge is that a lot of traditional archives or funded archives just are are not including a lot of us. Yeah. And so, I, again, that was the other thing that I drew on a lot, was looking at a lot of the work around community archives and um, archival activism. Mm. And that actually the process of creating community archives isn't in itself an act of activism. And that it is challenging, not just kind of what's in the archives, but also like how we do archival work and who an archivist could be and what is valuable archival material, you know. And so there's a huge, huge kind of like movement there around archival activism and then kind of combining that Mm. with some of Jamie Lee's work around, you know, querying the archive. Mm. I kind of finally kind of came to a place where I talk about what I do as queer archival activism. Yeah. Because I think that what I'm doing is an act of activism. Um, And it is around querying the archive, not just in terms of what's in it, but also in terms of how we do this work, you know, so I'm, I'm not, you know, that techie and I'm, you know, not trained archivist and I'm not trained, but yet I'm daring to do this work because it wouldn't be done otherwise, you know, and I think that that that's really important. And I went to the, um, the arms conference in Berlin last year in the days when we could travel. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and my theme song for it was Gunga Nancy's, you know, yes, it's fucking political. And yeah. to me, you know, archives are political and they're not neutral. And, yeah. and this work is, is fundamentally political, you mm. know? So I suppose for me, it's been around a lot of the stuff around the practical work and the kind of steep learning curve for me personally trying to do this, but it's also been around trying to conceptualize what is this about, you Mm. know, and and that is political and it is um, activism. And I think the difficulty is that this kind of work is not funded or supported. And it is, um, for the most part, especially in the Irish context, being done on a voluntary basis. Um, so you need somebody as crazy as me or ye who kind of <laughs> is committed to doing this work and has a passion to see this work happen. Mm. And it shouldn't be dependent on that. Now, I think obviously you need fire and enthusiasm and, mm. you know, um, passion in this work, but it shouldn't be dependent on kind of working it around kind of what time you have available in your other commitments, you know, yeah. and. You know, there are there's other archives like the Irish Trans Archive that Sarah Phillips. Oh yeah. And again, incredible work. You mm. know, which is really um, knocking on the head the assertion that people all were coming up with. Oh, we can't include trans history because Ireland doesn't have any Irish trans history. Ireland has a very very long yeah. history of um, transgender people and activism yeah. and communities. You know, our, our first transgender community organization in the mid 1970s, the Friends mm. of Eon. 
But without the work and the passion of somebody like Sarah Phillips, that work wouldn't be out there. So I think that's a that's a huge issue. Um, and and like any of the funding that I've managed to get for the Cork LGBT Archive has been very kind of limited for specific things like mm. the um, archival boxes, mm. um, or you know the Cork City Council Heritage Office. Mm. Um, has also supported the work of the community of, of the Cork History Archive. So they funded the Queer Public Cork book mm. and also um, pull up banners. So there's now a kind of a more portable exhibition, That's... which is like three kind of banners, which is supported by them. Um, but there's no core funding and there's no staff funding. And so, you know, I think that's an issue that far archives do you do you feel it's a i mean it's a double-edged thing isn't it in a way like the amount of autonomy you have to be able to do what you want to do is significant if underfunded but then as you move into a into a more as you move into a more kind of structured sort of context the entity then becomes more hemmed in by constraints i mean for instance isn't there some form of a reference group or board that the um you, the archive has, or you have a, a group that you can go to and you can talk to, isn't that correct? Yeah, I set up an advisory group kind of um, to kind of, you know, advice and guidance yeah. and stuff. Um, on hasn't actually been very active for the last while, so right. um, we need to kind of reactivate that. But I think you're right about the institutional thing because, you know, that was a huge challenge around, you know, the, the physical collection of the Cork LGBT archive. Um, because as I said, I had access to some temporary space in UCC, but there was a change of an administrator in the key office. And basically I was uh, told to vacate immediately that the room I was using needed to be used. And I think that was two years ago and it had, wow. that room has never been used since. But oh. so, you know, that whole thing of being dependent on goodwill of, of yeah. people. So we needed, I didn't want to send it back to the archive, sorry, back to the basement. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it needed to go somewhere. Um, but, you know, myself and Arthur had long conversations about this and we were very fearful around giving the collection to an institution mm. and cognizance as well of, you know, the issues that have, have emerged for some other archives that have been collect, uh, donated to institutions in terms of, difficulty accessing it or you know it not being kind of accessible to the public and all kinds of things yeah. but um, we um, met with the um, Cork Public Museum with the curator Daniel Green and mm. discussed our kind of you know reservations and there was a willingness to take those on board and mm. um, so the physical collection is now in the uh, Cork City Council Public Museum in Fitzgerald Park and right. um, with a book of Eamon de Valera outside the door, which makes me smile. And it's great. Little <laughs> <laughs> did he um, know. <laughs> exactly. And, um, but I think that that has been, you know, that was, that was a scary step. But, mm. you know, they have agreed that um, I still have full access to the material. So I can continue to work on it, to digitize it, to do, you know, what I want, which was a key yeah. requirement. They uh, are going to finish the work of cataloging and sorting it. Mm -hmm. And once that is finished, um, they will facilitate public access to the uh, collection. So by appointment, people can go in and look at the material. Right. And 
crucially, there is a firm commitment to creating a permanent Cork LGBT archive exhibition in the Cork Public Museum. Excellent. Now, it takes a couple of years to do it, but there is that firm commitment. Oh, and that's in line with their uh, policy of trying to expand um, the version of history that they're presenting and preserving. So there's a permanent Irish traveller exhibition in the Cork Public Museum mm. um, for the last couple of years. Mm. And there's also a Jewish exhibition that they created using some um, physical pieces from a synagogue that closed down in, in Cork. So, you know, including the Cork LGBT archive is part of that overall kind of vision that they have. Yeah. But that was a big scary, scary step, but actually, you know, it's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it feels like, but at least it's safe. And, oh, yeah. um, and also I think there's something, you know, uh, I get, I get some pleasure thinking of all the groups of school children who are going to be, you know, brought to the public museum yeah. for their, their, their tour and they'll see the old city walls of Cork and they'll also see the LGBT exhibition. And that, that's really important to see ourselves cool. reflected and see that diversity reflected, do you know? That's cool. Um, so yeah, so you know, it has been kind of moving from those quite precarious early stages, do you know? Well, so, to, well I was gonna to say to move to the to the the museum, the city museum, that's a fantastic move. I mean that's that must be a vindication of everything from what you from when you set out. But I'm just wondering, you had the book published, did you find the book I mean, do you want to talk about how the book became to be and then also do you think the book was useful in terms of opening up new um horizons? for the archive? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I I was always conscious that the story of the um, Cork LGBT community wasn't kind of in, in the public domain so mm. easily accessible. Mm. But I was also conscious of the fact that there are multiple stories, you know, and I think I was holding back kind of thinking, you know, I don't know everything yet and I can't tell everything yet. And, mm. you know, the need to have like, you know, multiple voices heard and stuff. Um, and then I remember kind of uh, finding a, a book in Gaze the Word Bookshop in London one time, which was about um, uh, some uh, gay liberation uh, groups in London in the 1970s, I think. And I remember looking at it and it was the second edition. Mm. And they were talking about the fact that they'd published the first edition. And by publishing that, it stimulated more stories to come forward. Yeah. And then they added those in and... And I thought, oh, yeah, it doesn't have to be everything. It yeah. doesn't have to be perfect. It can just be more than what's already out there. Mm. Um, and then Cork City Council had a um, heritage publication grant, mm. which I decided to apply for. And I gave myself a week to um, apply for this, which I thought was plenty of time to pull a funding application together. Right. Until I read the print and realized that they wanted a draft of the book. Ooh. And I thought, okay, I week? can't do that. And I went and I had a cup of coffee and then I thought, actually, maybe I can because, you know, I have all this material. Mm. So, you know, I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing to confess, but I wrote the first draft of the book in two days. Um, <laughs> That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. That. But um, so I, I, I put in a funding application and the city council supported that. So, you know. It's a lot of work to kind of, you know, add to that and mm. uh, add an extra decade in on the first draft. Yeah. Um, 
but it just it, it it was really good to kind of be able to get something out there and a local uh, publishers uh, on stream publications came on board um, to kind of help kind of publish it and I think that it, it is useful to kind of be able to enable people to engage with the material in lots of different ways and that's always a key thing for me is that not everybody's going to want to wade through boxes of archival material but some mm -hmm. people will love that mm -hmm. not everybody's going to want to look through a digital archive but some people will love that mm -hmm. some people will like getting maybe an update on a facebook page like mm -hmm. every now and again some people like you know reading a book but the book also has loads of reproductions of images from the archives yeah. so people can also look at the images there and similarly the exhibition enables people to engage in another way again um, but, you know, when you were saying about it helping with uh, opening doors, I think it did, because when we went to meet with Daniel Green in the, in the museum, the first time he pulled the book off his shelf, which, you know, so... Did he? It's, yeah, ah. because the museum is part under this Cork City Council. So, you right, know, course, I yeah. had made contact with the heritage officer saying, you know, I'm in this situation, I'm losing the space, I need somewhere to put it. And, and she had you know, got in touch with Daniel. So it did open doors. And I think the other thing that opened doors um, is was the marriage equality referendum. Um, and, you know, while, while I would have some issues around uh, some of the ways that that all happened, I think yeah. the result of that was that for, for somebody in Daniel Breen's position, it felt easier to get support mm. to do something this to take in the LGBT collection and to commit to the exhibition um, so I think that it did kind of change the the climate around inclusion of LGBT um, archives you know that's interesting so such because there's obviously a massive event in the history of the society and, and that it has that sort of an outworking as well. That's very heartening, actually, to hear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that in some ways, the marriage equality uh, referendum is an interesting one from an archival perspective, you mm. know, in the sense that there's one narrative about that being retold constantly. And there's a lot of voices that are silenced within that narrative that's repeated all the time, you know, mm. and it's a very Dublin-centric narrative. Mm -hmm. It's focused on a number of individuals um, and it doesn't uh, give voice to the voices that were actively silenced within the marriage equality referendum because they were too queer and mm -hmm. didn't represent the nice fluffy dresses and white picket fence image that some people wanted to portray. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that for me, that's one of the reasons for doing this kind of archival work is yeah. that you will allow multiple voices to be heard and that it's not just about repeating ad nauseum the mm. same version, but it's also about acknowledging the fact that something like the marriage equality referendum didn't happen out of the blue. Mm. It built on decades and decades of LGBT activism. It built on decades of people not being willing to accept the dominant narrative about what it meant to be lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender in Irish society and actively set about changing yeah. that society. Yeah. And I think, you know, we can look back, say, for example, at the 1970s um, through a very kind of negative lens. And in lots of ways, it was a very difficult place to be mm. lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. 
um, you know, there's huge prejudice and discrimination and violence. And, you know, it was, it was not like on the surface, a really good place. But I'm always interested in looking beyond that and looking at the ways in which people created community and created safe spaces. And even before the first official organizations were established, you had a circuit of fabulous gay parties in Cork in the early 1970s. You know, you had um, a number of bars that were seen as being kind of safe spaces mm. or at least, you know, friendly enough spaces that people could find one another. Um, you had people reaching out to one another. You also had people who just couldn't find that. And, and that was one of the difficulties, you know, where, you know, you kind of had to be able to find it, but it was there. And then when the official organization set up, you know, that whole thing of the mixture of creating fun social spaces like discos and socials, but also newsletters and telephone helplines and reaching out to the media to challenge misconceptions that were there and actively campaigning for change and and liaising with allies like the trade unions to kind of get people to support things like the legislative changes that needed to happen, reaching out to the guards to kind of like build a more positive relationship. And, you know, I think, you know, it's a very nuanced story that often gets lost in the rehashing of a very narrow version of it, of our history. So I think that's important. And, you know, it wasn't all the same around the country, you know, I think a lot of the story we talked about in Dublin was that the motivation came from the fact that gay men were being arrested and publicly humiliated in the courts. Mm. I can't find that story in Cork, really? you know, yeah. and, and maybe it's there and I haven't found it, but mm. the stories I'm hearing are, you know, um, Dave Roach, uh, was a LGBT activist and, um, who died a couple of years ago, told me some really kind of interesting stories about being a teenager cruising in Cork in the kind of 1970s, early 80s. And he said, like, he'd meet the local guard and the guard would say, would you not just go home to your mammy? You know, (laughs) very different kind of story than than what we're hearing in Dublin, you know. And the first gay centre literally was across the road from the guard station, you know. And they knew it was there. And they would come in every now and again to check that there was no alcohol on the premises, which, of course, there wasn't. Um, Right. that he was over 18 and would leave. Now, this is the 1970s. It's well before decriminalization. It's an invisible history, but within that invisible history, there are more invisible histories. And I think we need to do everything we can to try and expand the range of voices that we're telling and hearing. It was creating a space of our own, but it was also actively changing the society in which we lived. Yeah. You know, And I think that's the other part of the story that's often not told, is how fundamentally intrinsic the LGBT community was mm. in social change movements in Ireland, you know, um, and the tensions that existed there, um, you know, I mean, there there are tensions around the fact that um, in the anti-amendment campaigns in the 1980s that there was resistance to naming LGBT organisations as participant organisations because it might turn off some of the support, wow. uh, I think particularly in Dublin, mm. but in Cork, I think that there wasn't such a segregation between the LGBT community and left left activists and environmentalists and whatever, because you had the Kikoa Mm. and Lofer's Bar. Mm. And those two spaces um, were hubs of 
political activism and alternative ways of being in the world yeah. and social change movements. Yeah. And I think they brought people together. And, you know, so you would have, you know, one person might be involved in lots of different groups mm. or, you know, you would go into the co-op for a slice of pizza and you'd see the poster about the demo that was happening, you know, next week. And, you know, so there was a lot of mutual information and support and engagement and overlap. And, and I think, you know, the LGBT community was fundamentally involved in, in trying to change the society mm. in which we all live. Um, you had like, you know, um, Gays Against the Amendment leaflet, it's in the archive collection. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I think that that was just really important um, part of, of the story, you know, that the, all those groups kind of came together yeah. and, and and changed the society in, in which we were living. In the archive, like it says, like, I think the first National Gay Conference was held in Connie Hall in Cork in 81, which is amazing in a way. Um, and it brings together all, uh, LGBT activists and organisations. Then at the Belfast one in 83, uh, it seeks greater lesbian involvement in sexism and awareness young, amongst gay men. So, I mean, it's also about like the community itself learning and developing and becoming itself more aware in a sense it, it's it's a many layer it's what you're saying there about this this lack of nuance almost in the narratives because it's it, people are developing all the time and evolving and getting better yeah you know and and there were you know tensions <laughs> between you know gay men and lesbians uh, in the community and sometimes communities worked really well together and sometimes there was difficulties yeah. and you know, when the first gay centre opened, there was a lesbian meeting there in January 1978, mm. the first lesbian meeting that I can find. And a lot of the focus was around trying to convince the men to give some space and resources for women's activities. And that was echoed again in workshops in the 1981 conference in Conley Hall, and like you said, again in 1983. So, you know, it, there, were, there were tensions there, you know, and there was tensions as well between um people who would have seen themselves as being very political and, and involved in political activism and people who just wanted to have fun yeah. um, but i think one of the the joys of cork was that because it was so small that in some ways everybody ended up together right. you know even if they were coming from different places and stuff you know you probably all end up in the back room of yeah. together at some stage so um and i think that helped to foster more of a sense of community than maybe in Dublin, where my sense has always been that there was more of a scene, but less of a, a community or maybe small fragmented communities. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you should say fun as well, because also looking through the you have badges and so on and so forth in the archive as well. Mm. and posters and as a designer i look at a lot of this and i say to myself i can see both the influence on that and then the influence that had on broader design but again i think that links straight back into what you're saying about the society as well the sense of um you know the energy particularly in the 80s of course when you know in music and so forth and in the broader culture it becomes much more um maybe begrudgingly on the culture's part, but it suddenly becomes aware of the fact, like, you know, that Frankie goes to Hollywood and all the rest of it. People are actually having fun and there's an element of, there's almost a joyous kind of thing going on. But, um, but I, as again, as a designer, I see like how that inflected the broader culture and how it also took on aspects of the broader culture as well. But it, it's, yeah. it's, it's what you're saying there. Maybe it's, you know, it's people in a community and it's building up from that community to um, shake the foundations in a way. Yeah, and, and I suppose for me, that's always been what I've loved about the core community has been that 
um, political activism and awareness, but also that sense of fun and the sense of the importance, um, and I suppose I'm speaking more around the lesbian community, the importance of creating lesbian spaces so that you actually could step aside from the external kind of challenges of mainstream society and create lesbian spaces for the development of lesbian culture and fun and and I think you can see that in Cork with the the Cork Women's Fun Weekend which was started in 1984 and is still running wow. and, <laughs> and that was very much around that whole thing of you know yeah there's all this heavy-duty political activism going on but we also need some fun mm. And it created that space for people to come together. It brought people from all over Ireland, but also internationally, because, you know, 1980s, a lot of emigration. So you would have had a lot of, say, Cork lesbians living in London, and they would come back for the Women's Fun Weekend with their friends. So it created that cross-pollination of ideas and relationships yeah. and sexual politics. So a lot of the kind of politics around um, sex wars in the lesbian scene in London kind of filtered through to Cork. Um, in terms of because of that, that people coming in, um, and I and I think that that was just really important to have that mixture between political activism and the links with other groups around the the country and the space for cultural expression as well. You had a number of Cork bands that would form for and um, the Women's Fun Weekend and and my favourite kind of names were Brazen Bitch and Standing Ovulation. Um, but, you know, but I think that, you know, in terms of design stuff, I think it's really interesting um, for people to look at how we communicated about things in the 1980s. And I think for people to grow up in the age of like social media and instant, you know, being able to, you want, you organize an event, you, you set up a event page on Facebook, you share it and it's there and that's it. That's, that, that wasn't available to people in the 1980s. So, and very often you're talking about, again, very low budget. So people were hand drawing posters and there's yeah. a poster in the archive from the women's place in the key co-op in the 1980s and it's hand drawn and the the words women's face or women's place are hand drawn each of them in a different color with a different design pattern within each letter oh. i mean it's incredible when you look at it Fantastic. and if you try to explain to people like how how leaflets were you know designed so i think it's the 1981 gay conference and I have the leaflet in there, but what I also have in it in there is the original artwork for designing that leaflet. And um, you know, so you, you can engage with it from from a design perspective. Yeah. You know, or how we produced newsletters, our newspapers at the time. Yeah. You know, it was a very very different affair. And and I think that is the beauty of an archive. You know, that you can engage with it from a different perspective or lens or focus. And mm. um, and, and for me, that's why it's important that it's so kind of freely accessible that, you know, I'm not um, mediating your engagement with it. Yeah. You know, um, the, so that's important. The range is the range is incredible. I mean, uh, material on the Patrick's Day parades. Um, the other things that struck me, like this photo of Mika Reardon of the Communist Party and a, a young LGBT activist is coming up and talking to him with a leaflet in hand. And usually you think, well, if it's the other way around, he'd have leaflets. Or um, 
the the other another thing that kind of struck me as well was the uh, and you were talking about this earlier actually in respect of legislation trade union collection the workers rights and Irish trade unions mm-hmm. collection which is astonishing in a way like I mean it's, it's and and it comes to the heart I think of what you said there about the politicization this by necessity it had to be yeah I think that the the whole thing around the uh, worker trade unions is is really interesting and I think again it's a story that hadn't been told enough yet. Um, and, you know, you had, had people like Kieran Rose um, very, very actively engaged in trying to get the trade unions to understand that protecting LGBT workers' rights was part of their remit and getting them to understand that and take that on board and seeing the, the kind of trajectory from the first motions that were passed at a trade union meeting in Cork, right through to the unions producing kind of documents and supporting the kind of like move towards kind of decriminalization and respect for um, lesbian and gay rights at the time. Um, and I think that that's a really, really interesting uh, story to kind of follow and to be told, you know. Um, and last, not earlier this year, um, we hosted a out in the past LGBT history conference uh, in Cork, and um, we had the opening night in Conley Hall, ah. in recognition of the fact that Conley Hall had hosted um, the first LGBT um, national conference. It also was the venue for the social of the first Women's Fun weekend in 1984, and you know the the kind of ongoing kind of work as allies of the trade unions. Yeah. Um, and the opening kind of talks at night were filmed with the support from SIP2. They they kind of like paid to make this happen and they're on the archive, you know. So, again, it's around kind of capturing that history and, and sharing it um, with people so that, that it's it's there for people to, to kind of engage with. And I suppose the other thing that I, I think is important to mention is just in terms of um, long-term digital preservation. Mm. Um, and... You know, uh, I I created the the Cork LGBT Archive. I, I just have to say, you said there's a real range of, of information on there. What's on there is a fraction of the information that we have. There's a huge amount of work still needs to be done in terms yeah. of digitizing and adding material to the archive. And again, the difficulty is because that's being done one person on a voluntary basis, so it's, it's slow, but there's loads more material to be added. And one of the things that I, I've been trying to do as well is work with current um, LGBT organisations in Cork to try and encourage them to add material to the archive on an ongoing basis so that we don't continue to lose history, you know, that as it's happening, that we're capturing our history as it's happening. Um, but with the digital archive, you know, I, I was very aware of the need for long-term digital preservation and, you know, the fact that things can change so much in terms of technology and how do we ensure that this is still preserved and accessible in 20 years time. Um, and I went to a digital preservation conference in London a few years ago and the biggest learning I came away with was that not only was this really important but that I did not have the resources to do it myself in terms of you know uh, resources technical or funding or you know any of that. Um, and it had always been kind of my kind of planned that it would maybe go to the Digital Repository of Ireland mm. because um, I think, you know, the DRI is the national 
repository for this. They have the kind of the skills, resources, mm -hmm. expertise to do it. But it's also that whole thing of trying to bring this marginalized history into the mainstream yeah. and have it be part of our national repository. So have the Heritage Council fund, you know, activities and things for the Cork Edge have the Digital Repository of Ireland included in their collections. And so that had always been in my mind. And then they um, ran their first community archive scheme um, last year, I think, 2019, I think. Anyway, uh, Cork Elgipity Archive uh, won the, the award for the first community archive scheme from the DOI. And so that Very was impressive. brilliant in terms of just, you know, facilitating the archive collection going into the DOI. So it's now on the DOI as well. So you can access it there and in terms of long-term digital preservation that's so important yeah. but the other thing that that enabled was to add the material then into Europeana uh, which is the kind of European um, kind of heritage and digital repository and um, they would link into um, items that are held in in national repositories around around Europe and um, so there's all that thing about just trying to get it out there more and um, but like I said, it's a fraction of the material so far. There's so much more to add. And, you know, there's so many voices as well that aren't in the kind of physical items that I have. So it's also been about being very conscious of the gaps within the collection that I, I have access to. Um, so like, for, for example, with trans voices kind of, been so lucky to have Sarah Folks been willing to kind of share some of her materials into the archive and and also kind of looking at kind of maybe capturing more oral histories mm. so the voices that aren't, aren't present are able to be heard more but again that needs resources and time and you know people do it so like there's always a long to-do list um, but, you know, slowly, you know, that fantasy list from the beginning, you know, and kind of ticking off more and more things, you know. So I wanted to do something with the physical collection. I wanted to create a digital archive. I wanted to make sure that that was going to be safe. And mm. uh, I had fantasies about a book. I, I wanted an exhibition. And the very first exhibition that I pulled together was a zero budget exhibition. I mean, I literally had no money, but I wanted to do yeah. it. And, um Again, it, a lot of it's good grace, you know, um, a sympathetic staff member in UCC was going on his holidays and he had an A3 colour printer and he brought it to the space that I was working in UCC, said, I'm gone for two weeks, you just have it wow. and gave me, it gave me ink. And so I could print images onto photographic paper, which then were stuck on the wall right. and, you know, in... Um, the Camden Palace Community Centre. And again, for me, it was important that these things are happening in community centres, you know. Um, and it was just amazing to be able to to see that and, and to be able to enable people to walk through the decades, you know, so walk through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. Um, but it was not very portable, right. you know. It was very hard to pull up and take down <laughs> safely and do somewhere else. So the pull-up banners are, are, are much more... Uh, yeah, easy to, to display. Have you exhibited around Ireland yet? Yeah, it's um, so it's been in loads of venues in Cork. Yeah. Um, it was in uh, St. Peter's um, in North Main Street for six weeks, mm. um, the first first year. Um, 
And then it's it's been yeah loads of venues in Cork. It was in Belfast City Hall, yeah. which I took some uh, enormous pleasure from. Um, and then uh, it went to Berlin yeah. last year for the LGBT Arms Conference. So that was lovely to be able to have it in a kind of um, on a, in in a, a kind of a very venue. big event. Yeah. And are you gonna like? Would you have plans of like you know um, Limerick, Dublin, Galway, and so forth once the pandemic eases? And so forth, or is that part of the process? Or? Do you mean for the exhibition? Yeah, for the exhibition. For... Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm very happy to to have it shared anywhere that, that the people are interested yeah. in it. I mean, I think that it would be great to have similar kinds of projects coming out of places That's like true. Limerick and Galway yeah. mm-hmm. and Waterford, and there is. Um, Somebody who who's started discussions with me recently about doing a similar kind of thing in Waterford, you know, which I think would be really exciting if if it happens. Right. Um, right. So, you know, I think there's there's huge potential to really expand the story that we're talking about. Yeah. But I think if we want people to have more inclusive narratives around Irish LGBT history, but also Irish history mm. in general, I think people need access to the material. Mm. And I think that's one of the things about having the Cork LGBT archive is that the material is there for people to access. Yeah. Um, and then you can see that in the work of, say, for example, uh, Patrick McDonough. Um, and um, Patrick has a publication coming out soon around um, Irish LGBT activism right. in the 70s to the 90s. Right. And he's used a lot of material from the Cork LGBT archives. Yeah. So, you know, it, it kind of makes it easier for people to be able to include that rich history if they can access the material to do that. Yeah. And it's fantastic that, you, um, that you're still so enthusiastic about the project that you haven't yeah, had that sort of... Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Well, I have to say my energy flags sometimes and I found uh, earlier this year, I actually found my energy was really flagging mm. on it and I was kind of going... I've been doing this a few years now, like, you know, I'd love somebody else to kind of like take it on. And, 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 and I'm not sure how much more of my time I want to give to it. And then somebody will contact me to do something really exciting. Yeah. And I go, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I get excited again. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that, that, that it is getting to a point now where, where people are being more responsive to it and more positive mm-hmm. about it. And that helps to kind of feed me to, to do stuff. There's a exciting project in the kind of offing with Cork Pride, hopefully in the next few weeks. Okay. So yeah. kind of watch the space. So um, Cork Pride has, has moved kind of from its usual time to, I think, October this year. Yeah. So watch that space. There's, there's there's something in the offing there. Hopefully we can we can pull off. Oh, listen, listen. Um, but I do, I feed on people's kind of like energy with it as well because my energy for it was flagging. Okay. <laughs> But it's obviously completely re, uh, revitalised. Yeah, you know, uh, every now and again I kind of go, yeah, actually there is a point to this. <laughs> okay. Can we say thanks a million to you? That is, that's absolutely fantastic. Really appreciate you coming. Yeah, thank you. That was great chat.